worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, Cardio Nerds. Thanks for joining us as we tour fellowship programs across the country. As part of the Cardio Nerds Case Report Series, produced in collaboration with the ACC Fellow in Training section, each episode will feature a cardiology fellowship program. Fellows from the program present and teach about a fascinating case and share what makes their hearts flutter about their program. Each case discussion is followed by an eCPR segment from a content expert and a message from the program director. Before we dive in, just remember, we are an independent educational platform. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The case you are about to hear is 100% HIPAA compliant. We thank you for subscribing to and supporting the Cardio Nerds. Our mission is simple, to democratize cardiovascular education, promote diversity and inclusion, empower everyone to learn and teach from the basics to the advanced, while fostering wellness and humanity. If you believe in the mission, consider supporting us on patreon.com slash cardionerds. Every little bit goes a long way. We're also so excited to be growing the platform by mentoring the next generation of cardionerds. We are establishing the Cardionerds Academy and are looking for residents and fellows to join as Cardionerds fellows. Please see the link in the episode description to submit an application. Without further ado, let's continue on our tour with another fascinating case from amazing Cardionerds colleagues. We are so honored to be joined by cardiology fellows from the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center to walk us through another phenomenal case discussion. We are here with doctors Natalie Stokes, Agnes Coxo, and Kaylee Shapiro. Guys, welcome to the show. Would you please introduce yourselves? Sure thing. I'm Kaylee Shapiro. I'm a first-year general cardiology fellow. I grew up in central Maine. I spent most of my training up in the Northeast. I was at medical school at Tufts in Boston, and I recently finished my medicine residency at Yale. Also, I'm interested in sports cardiology and cardioobstetrics. Thanks so much for having us, guys. I'm Natalie Stokes. I am a second-year general fellow, originally from Boston. I did both med school and internal medicine residency at Penn in Philadelphia. I'm interested in health services research, healthcare equity, and medical education. I plan to pursue a career as a non-invasive cardiologist. Hey, everyone. I'm Agnes Coetzo, also a second-year general cardiology fellow. I'm originally from Budapest, Hungary, and I moved around a lot growing up, but spent most of my time growing up here in the U.S. west of New York City. I did med school at BCU and residency here at Pitt, and I am interested in a career in cardioobstetrics and adult congenital heart disease. Wow. Kaylee, Natalie, Agnes, incredible to meet you all. You are all from all over the place, and that's really cool. And we are in Pittsburgh today. We joked around pre-recording that you had a very special place to take us in Pittsburgh. So instead of me doing a whole monologue little bit about Pittsburgh, because I already got into the whole uh, Steelers-Ravens fight uh, situation <laughs> last Pittsburgh episode we did, why don't you just take us where we need to go? Oh, sure. So this is actually one of my favorite things to do in Pittsburgh. So we are cruising on my fishing boat in the Allegheny River. We're drinking a beer from the Dancing Gnome Brewery, which is right next to one of the marinas that you can park your boat at. And then we're going to drive down the boat to see if we can catch a home run out of the Pirate Stadium, because you literally can sit right outside and watch the games. And we are basking in the glory of all the 446 bridges that the city has to offer. 
Wow, that, uh, <laughs> what imagery is that? That's awesome. Yes, yes, ah, amazing. <laughs> so we're cruising along the river in wonder of all the things that we can see and enjoy in Pittsburgh. Guys, take us to your hospital and show us one of your cases. What do we have in store for us today? So we are hoping to give a little preamble to our case because our theme is cardioobstetrics. And so this niche of cardiology really grew out of a lot of statistics that women in this country are increasingly dying of pregnancy-related complications, of which cardiovascular causes actually make up the largest indirect obstetric causes. And one of the thoughts of this is that it's women who are older and have more chronic illness, like obesity and metabolic syndrome, hypertension, diabetes are getting pregnant. And so we thought that it was super important for us to understand the risks of literally half the patient population that we take care of, what they're going to endure during pregnancy for counseling purposes, for us as general cardiologists are super important, how to interpret their peripartum course, which is something we never do as cardiologists. And then how we can predict their future cardiovascular risk based on their peripartum course. And so that's why we really picked the case for today and the topics we wanted to discuss. And, and that was my spiel. <laughs> is a, that was a beautiful spiel. Thank you so much because cardioobstetrics in so much of cardiovascular training takes a sideline. And in my own training, you know, I feel like it's such a black box. So I'm so glad to highlight this. And we're so proud to also be featuring a number of cardio obstetrics related cases as part of the series, as well as, and this is an announcement I'm really happy to make, but we're going to be working with the Cardio OB Working Group from the American College of Cardiology to essentially bring about and promote this very important topic, which is not a niche because it affects 50% of our population. And we're going to be tackling it one episode at a time with experts and a deliberately designed curriculum to do exactly what you're saying. So thank you so much for bringing this to the forefront. Thank you for bringing this to the platform. Oh, we're so excited to do really this you. to hear. I'm excited about that. Thank you. Yeah, we're excited. Yeah, and I'll, I'll add, like, this was absolutely amazing. And it really resonates with me. The first call that I got as a general fellow starting in first year was I was home. I got a text from the resident consult, came in, and they showed me the CCG. And it's pre-excitation, WTW with AFib. And I'm like, diagnosis made. I'm in the shower. And then they're like, oh, and it's a pregnant person. And I'm <laughs> like, oh, my God. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <yeah. laughs> amazing. What amazing. the hell? Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. All right. So, Agnes, thank you for that little teaser. Now, as we're sitting here with our beers and baseball in hand, watching some fireworks on the water, let me tell you guys about a patient that I just saw in clinic at McGee's Women's Hospital. For those of you who are unfamiliar with UPMC, McGee is the obstetrical and gynecologic teaching hospital that's affiliated with UPMC, where they deliver 10,000 babies per year. As someone who's interested in cardioobstetrics, it's a fabulous place to have my clinic and see some really interesting cases, just like the one that I'm going to tell you about. Now, we had a 35-year-old G12 P7 female at 29 weeks gestation come into the clinic following an admission for increased shortness of breath, orthopnea, and abdominal distension. So just a little bit about her story. She's been feeling short of breath for the past one to two months, and she's had to use four pillows to sleep at night. She's also felt more short of breath just getting around, for example, walking towards the bus to make it to her appointments. So let me just stop for a moment. I know it's maybe been a little while since everyone has reviewed their OB-GYN nomenclature for med school, but G12P7 refers to 12 pregnancies, seven of which made it to a viable gestational age. So Natalie, what do you think about this initial presentation? 
Yeah. So at this point, as for any other patient, you want to take a broad view of the differential for her shortness of breath. But before I get to that, what pops to my mind, and I'm guessing what pops to everyone else's mind, is that this is a young woman who is pregnant. Doesn't narrow your differential, but it definitely situates it. In my experience, pregnant patients can make medicine doctors very uncomfortable, just given we don't get a lot of exposure and training in this area. So it prompts you to dig a little bit more into pregnancy-related conditions and also the physiology of normal pregnancy itself. But in terms of a differential, largely as a cardiologist, for this patient, I'm thinking about several things specifically. So normal pregnancy can cause a degree of shortness of breath and some degree of pulmonary edema. Her symptoms from what you're describing already sound a little bit out of proportion to this, but just note that it can. Pregnancy is a hypercoagulable state, so you should be thinking about PE. She's demonstrating here already some symptoms of both left and right heart failure, so you should be thinking about cardiomyopathy potentially diastolic dysfunction, which brings us to thinking about hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, also thinking about valvular disease, pulmonary hypertension, and in a young woman thinking about congenital heart disease, which is something to be mindful of given the rising population of women with congenital heart disease now reaching reproductive ages. So these are just some of the cardiac things that rise up in my mind in my differential, but it's definitely important to still maintain a broad differential as you collect more information. I'm going to chime in real quick. Natalie, that was phenomenal. And I have to say that whenever I get consulted on a patient who is pregnant, I get more than a little bit nervous for exactly the reasons that you outlined. It's not a patient population or a physiology that I, I know very well. Just thinking about my own heuristics and biases, the recency bias, we covered a case of uh, aortic stenosis manifesting in pregnancy in our second case report. And one of the things I learned is that, just like you said, that air hunger and shortness of breath, a perception of shortness of breath is expected and common in pregnancy in the earlier stages. But if it's worsening, especially in the later stages, like a third trimester of pregnancy, for instance, then we definitely need to think about pathological underlying causes of shortness of breath. And I just, I love the clinical reasoning and the differential diagnosis you laid out. Yeah, it's definitely one of the things we see a lot in our clinic, to be perfectly honest. This is a little aside, but it's hard to find that line because especially women are experiencing something that's abnormal for them at baseline, right? Pregnancy is not normal. That's not what they're used to. And so they're like, I'm feeling this way. And they're asking us to weigh in and help differentiate what is normal pregnancy versus, hey, this sounds like a little bit out of the norm. So that's a lot of what we actually get exposure to in our clinic. And I guess as we go on talking about this case, we'll get into more of that. But it's not exactly straightforward all the time. Yeah. And Natalie, I'll just add, first of all, you made us feel really comfortable already because A, you went over the nomenclature, which, oh my gosh, it's like, it's like uh, almost like ophthalmology nomenclature for me. I'm just kidding. It's not that bad. <laughs> like I can understand it, but also <laughs> something that I have to always refresh on. But then again, you made us feel so comfortable because a lot of the differential diagnoses that you brought up are things that we do think about on a routine basis. But I think what makes this unique and makes your explanation so nice is that the pregnancy and the situation just shifts around different things, higher and lower than compared to the general patient coming in with shortness of breath, orthopnea, and abdominal distension. But then again, I love that you, at the end, cycled back to being broad and saying, okay, that's what we think about cardiovascularly for the pregnant patient, but we're not going to forget all the other things. And I think that's really a great way to approach things. 
Definitely. And so there's a little bit more we can actually talk about as far as this OB history. Actually, Agnes, I think, had a few points. Yeah. So I think specifically regarding her OB history, I think you can gain so much just from your opening sentence, Kaylee, 29-year-old G12P7. So even in thinking about her at 29 weeks, already I know she's in the third trimester. So, you know, when I think about women in pregnancy, I think about that 20-week point specifically when I'm thinking about differentials like the hypertensive disorders of pregnancy in which we start defining things beyond the 20-week point. And so when you talk about sequelae like shortness of breath, I definitely am bringing that into my differential already when she's at 29 weeks. You also told me she's a G12, but a P7. And so specifically what I'm waiting to hear in your OB history, which I know you're going to give me because you're an awesome first year cardiology fellow, but I'm curious (laughs) if she's had any complications from her prior pregnancies, because I know that those are really just windows to, you know, future complications that she's going to have in her pregnancies. And so that's something I'm going to be listening for when you talk about her medical histories. The other thing I note is that she's at advanced maternal age, which we define as usually age 35 or more by the time of delivery. And I know just by sheer nature of her being at an advanced maternal age, she's at higher risk for things like preeclampsia. And so already just by you giving me her age and her G's and P's, I've already added a couple of things to my differential. Okay, so why don't I just tell you a little bit more about our patient? So as far as her past medical history, she has chronic hypertension, although she's not currently on any antihypertensives. She has a history of OSA for which she doesn't use a CPAP, mostly because of discomfort with wearing the mask. She also has asthma and morbid obesity. So as far as her OB history, which we've learned that it's really important to take this history every time we talk to our female patients. So as I mentioned, she's had 12 prior pregnancies and seven live births. She's also had one spontaneous abortion and three elective abortions. Specifically regarding these live pregnancies or the live deliveries, she had one preterm delivery at 32 weeks for reasons that we're not entirely sure of. Some of her other past medical history and other history in general, there's no history of early CAD. For her social history, she previously worked as a CNA but quit two months prior to presentation. She also denies any history of alcohol, tobacco, or illicit drug use during this pregnancy. You know, I just want to take this time to recognize that, one, thank you so much for filling out the PowerPoint template that we sent you. But I I realize that you very gently changed the template in our history, which initially included past medical history, past surgical history, medication, family history, allergy, social history. You included a whole other section that I didn't have in this template and really don't have in my usual history taking, which is the OB history. So, um, you know, and ah, I, that's, yeah. oh, <laughs> that's a learning point that I'm taking away from. <laughs> so I thank you for, for mm-hmm. um, highlighting the OB history in this and many other patients. And I should know better because we've talked about the importance of adverse pregnancy outcomes for cardiovascular health and general health, because you know we spoke about this with Dr. Leslie Cho as part of our prevention series. We talked about this with Dr. Martha Gulati. We spoke about this with Dr. Nanette Wenger. And so, again, I, I feel a little sheepish that we hadn't included it, but I'm so glad mm-hmm. that you added it and are highlighting it because having a spontaneous abortion, a preterm delivery, these are all relevant for the substrate that we're working with. So thank you. Of course. Great. So just weighing in a little bit on what Kayla was just telling us in terms of how I'm sorting through my differential. Some of the things I'm thinking about here is she has the presence of both chronic asthma and untreated OSA. Both of these things like this doesn't seem consistent at all with an asthma exacerbation, but they do place her at risk for pulmonary hypertension. So I'm starting to think about that a little bit more as well. 
she spent a long time in a hypercoagulable state, so PE is raising up a little bit in my differential, although the time course of her symptoms, saying one to two months of kind of progressive worsening shortness of breath, doesn't quite fit there. Her hypertension does raise some flags for me, so this could contribute to diastolic dysfunction. This could vary on a spectrum in terms of clinical significance at this point, so I'd want to hear more about her hypertension. Kelly, what? medications is she on? She takes a baby aspirin and a prenatal vitamin. Great. And I think it's a good time to pause, Kaylee, and talk about aspirin because it's obviously different from our typical uh, CAD patients and their indications for aspirin. And actually, several different medical societies, including the HA as well as ACOG, have weighed in about aspirin in patients with chronic hypertension in pregnancy and have gone on to recommend a baby aspirin to be initiated at 12 weeks of gestation for patients that are high risk for preeclampsia. And so who's really at high risk for preeclampsia? Well, patients like her with prior history of chronic hypertension, as well as patients with prior history of preeclampsia and preterm delivery, and then chronic history of diabetes, renal disease, or autoimmune disease are also indications for starting your patients on baby aspirin. It's important to remember to tell your patients it's actually only been shown to reduce incidence of preterm birth and preeclampsia and not actually mortality for either mom or baby. But overall, the risk of taking baby aspirin is so small in pregnancy that overall the risk benefit is worth it. But getting back to what Natalie was saying, I'm actually interested in knowing her vitals because at this point in her pregnancy, she may actually may or may not be hypertensive. Before you give the vitals, can I ask just some practical advice? So the uh, OB floor is on floor eight and it's like lock and key. You can't even get in there. I mean, this is pre-COVID mm-hmm. times. Like you got to like retina scan right. and whatever. Mm-hmm. Give us a live sample. <laughs> okay. So anyways, I've always felt a little timid going into the zone. I was wondering if you had any tips doing an exam on a pregnant woman or how to approach a uh, knock on the door, or is there anything specifically different from a cardiology consulting? And they might be pretty nervous because uh, they're seeing a cardiologist maybe for the first time and they're there for pregnancy and they didn't expect these problems to develop. Is there any tips or tricks that you would give? So I think that the last thing that you said is actually pretty pertinent in the sense that most of these patients are healthy females who are going through pregnancy, don't know the normal from the not normal, and are seeing a cardiologist for the first time. And they're anxious because it's not just them now, it's them and baby, and they're very, very on edge. And so I think just in general, trying to reassure for things that are within the normal physiology of pregnancy is very helpful. And then to also explain why or why not you're doing certain testing, what you're looking for, and how that will change your delivery. And I think something we're going to talk about further on in this podcast is the benefit of interdisciplinary care cannot be underestimated. There's been some really amazing people at UPMC who have made collaborations that I think is really moving forward care for a lot of these women who have had any sort of cardiac complications or hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, both for their own care and for their baby's care. So I don't know if you guys have anything else to weigh in on that. I think from a practical standpoint, just examining the patient, I totally agree from a reassurance standpoint that people, when they get pregnant, they come in super nervous about, am I going to have a complicated pregnancy? People are very nervous about that. From a physical exam standpoint, knowing the physiologic changes, which basically any book written by Yuri Al-Khayyam or, you know, Afshan Hamid, like any of these cardiobstetric books will take you through 
the physiology in pregnancy and, and even from a cardiac standpoint, what you should think about is important to note when you walk into a room and it's important to know where women are in their pregnancy. You know, if you see lower extremity edema, it's important to get a good JVP exam. Know if patients are getting lower extremity edema, when you lay them back, they're not necessarily going to feel comfortable. They may feel dyspneic. They're going to feel better, you know, they're on their left lateral side. Just like little tips and tricks about the physiology are going to be helpful like during your exam. And I think as you examine more pregnant patients, you'll get used to that. So speaking of which, what did the exam show in this case? All right. So first, I'm going to get a little into the vitals. So she was afebrile. Her heart rate was 98. Her blood pressure was 147 over 76. And her respiratory rate was in the 20s. She was setting 96% on room air. Her weight was 206 kilos, which put her at a BMI of 72.9. So with these vitals, are you guys surprised at all that she's not on any antihypertensive medications? No, not surprised, actually, because normal pregnancy has a drop in diastolic blood pressure and systolic pulse pressure, most prominent in the second trimester. And then these pressures start to increase throughout the third trimester. So many women who actually require antihypertensives at baseline are able to wean off of them during pregnancy. Okay, but so she's now in her third trimester. So what about her blood pressure now? So it's obviously not normal now. It's above the threshold of 140 over 90, which is used to define hypertension during pregnancy. And this could certainly be her chronic hypertension just re-manifesting. But given that she's beyond 20 weeks having these symptoms, I'm also definitely concerned that she may be having a hypertensive disorder of pregnancy. And just to clarify terminology with that, the hypertensive disorders of pregnancy include chronic hypertension, gestational hypertension, preeclampsia and eclampsia, and then also chronic hypertension with superimposed preeclampsia. So that's a lot of stuff. But chronic hypertension itself is something that we know this patient has. She had hypertension predating pregnancy or somebody who has hypertension that manifests before 20 weeks gestation. Gestational hypertension arises after 20 weeks gestation. These patients, about a quarter to a third, will progress to preeclampsia. And preeclampsia itself is high blood pressure in the second half of pregnancy, so after those 20 weeks. And it can actually manifest up to six weeks postpartum. That's something to be mindful of. And this is accompanied by proteinuria or other signs of end organ dysfunction. So it's important, as we said before, for us as cardiologists to be aware of the hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, not only because they're a predictor of future cardiovascular disease in women, but also, as with this patient, it can potentially cause some severe end organ manifestations for which cardiology may need to be acutely involved. So what actually did her physical exam show? On physical exam, she's a young woman, she's morbidly obese, and she's in mild distress with mild tachypnea. Her exam is notable for crackles at the lung bases bilaterally. She has one plus lower edema and lower abdominal distension with some subcutaneous edema. Overall, her exam was quite challenging because of her body habitus, but there were no overt signs of florid heart failure. So this was a, an interesting point because we see when we have difficulty with our physical exam and really showed us that in a lot of situations, we have to rely on objective data in addition to help with our assessment. Yeah, absolutely. Volume exam baseline is quite difficult. And so in a patient like this with her body habitus, it would definitely be even more so. So her lab work would be helpful because things like proteinuria and end organ manifestations like 
transaminitis, thrombocytopenia, would help us to triage a bit with respect to these hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. Okay, of course, Natalie. So we'll move on to some labs. She had normal chemistries, she had a normal CBC and normal LFTs. Her troponin was negative and her UA was positive for protein and her spot protein to creatinine ratio was 0.69. So just for reference, because those aren't necessarily labs that we got on every single patient, the spot protein to creatinine ratio is normally less than 0.2 or 0.3, depending on your lab reference. So normally in pregnancy, as you mentioned, we look for a specific panel of labs that can help us assess for complications of pregnancies. And those, as you had mentioned, include LFTs, platelets, and then the urine protein to creatinine ratio. And oftentimes these panels will actually be obtained at the beginning of pregnancy to set a baseline. For this patient in particular, we can see that she's spilling a lot of protein into her urine. Yeah, Kaylee agreed. So this protein in her urine is certainly not normal. And in the context of an elevated blood pressure, This does place her in a category where I'm concerned for superimposed preeclampsia on her chronic hypertension. Are there any other pertinent studies that you got that help with our diagnosis? Yep. So we obtained an EKG, which showed normal sinus rhythm with no signs of hypertrophy. We also got a chest x-ray, which showed bilateral pulmonary edema. So based on these findings, we can say that her shortness of breath is probably from pulmonary edema, but Why does she have pulmonary edema to begin with? Could it just be because her blood pressure is elevated? And speaking of that pressure, should we be worried? Do we need to treat that? Yeah, so those are all good questions. Her pulmonary edema can absolutely be a consequence of this hypertension. In patients with preeclampsia, the presence of pulmonary edema actually qualifies as a severe feature which does impact how we treat these patients. That said, if she had chronic, uncontrolled hypertension at baseline, she's also still someone who could have diastolic dysfunction at baseline, which makes her more prone to this. We still do need to rule out structural heart abnormalities for this patient, which I'm sure we'll get to in a bit. But first, I do think it's worthwhile to talk a bit about whether we treat her hypertension, and if so, how we treat her hypertension. Okay. Wow. This is really informative. Guys, her blood pressure as we recorded it earlier was 147 over 76 millimeters of mercury. That's not that impressive. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. So, right. Exactly. This is something that we typically see all the time. And, you know, we don't necessarily dwell on it, but I'm obviously getting the clue that when it comes to pregnancy, this is a huge factor. So what values make you concerned in terms of the pregnant patient with blood pressure issues? And, And then what is your assessment of this person's blood pressure in the context of pulmonary edema that makes you think that it's a potential cause of pulmonary edema? Because, you know, 147 over 76 is not a number that I typically think would cause pulmonary edema. So how how does that factor into the pregnancy? Absolutely. There's a red flag that goes up anytime women have blood pressure systolics of over 140 or diastolics over 90. In pregnancy, that is considered abnormal, especially in this time frame where your pressure should be a little bit lower and then they can rebound up quite high. And that can cause a lot of these more severe symptoms than you would anticipate from pressures like this. And uh, Natalie, correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that in contrast to a hypertensive emergency with flash pulmonary edema, in this setting, we don't think the hypertension is causing the pulmonary edema, but rather both the pulmonary edema and organ injury and the hypertension are all manifestations of the underlying pathobiology and abnormal vascular reactivity. Yeah, correct. Absolutely. Yep, absolutely. You guys are totally right. So the pathophysiology of preeclampsia is such that there's this 
the abnormal trophoblastic invasion of the spiral arteries. And basically, the purpose of this is to create a placental circulation that is you know, high capacitance and low resistance to essentially get blood and nutrients to the baby. But in preeclampsia, this doesn't happen appropriately. And so you end up getting these low capacitance, high resistance vessels. And this creates this high hypoxia and ischemic environment that we think sets off this ischemic inflammatory cascade that people posit creates a lot of the end organ sequelae, including the endothelial or the vascular hypertensive sequelae, the proteinuria or the renal sequelae, and then some of the pulmonary sequelae. So people have actually found trophoblastic remnants in some of the biopsies of pulmonary tissue of patients with prior preeclampsia. So this is definitely a systemic disease. It's a pro-inflammatory disease, and it's likely a disease that begins all from this abnormal placentation that occurs very early on in pregnancy. And Agnes, if I can just build on what you're saying, going through my OB-GYN rotation, I never quite understood the pathobiology of preeclampsia. I never really had a good way of thinking about it. But your group proposing this case discussion forced me to go to the literature and reread a little bit more about preeclampsia, especially because we know it to be an important risk-enhancing factor. Mm-hmm. And I found a great review in the journal Hypertension from 2019 that essentially proposes a framework that makes it much more intuitive to me as a cardiologist. And the premise is that, look, we know that preeclampsia is a very important risk factor for atherosclerotic vascular disease moving forward. And that's why it was included in the 2018 guidelines as an important risk-enhancing factor to modify a risk for borderline intermediate risk patients. But then they went further and said, look, but there are the risk factors for preeclampsia itself are shared risk factors for people with atherosclerotic disease in general. So it may not be that preeclampsia is independently a risk factor for heart disease, but rather is a manifestation of vascular disease to begin with. And so they essentially put forth this framework of thinking, okay, think about a patient's cardiovascular reserve and based on their cardiovascular risk factors to begin with, and then think about the demands of pregnancy and excessive demand. And so essentially have a supply-demand mismatch. So it's like the way they're saying is think about the whole pregnancy and all the hemodynamic changes or adaptations in pregnancy as a stress test for the cardiovascular reserve of the patient. And so essentially what they said, look, if you have decreased cardiac reserve or decreased supply, the risk factors for those would be maternal age, obesity, ethnicity. We know that this is more likely to happen in African-Americans, uh, diabetes, dyslipidemia, autoimmune diseases, chronic hypertension, CKD, all the risk factors we're familiar with as cardiologists those decrease the reserve. And then think about the demand. And so the risks of the factors that increase the demand of pregnancy would be fetal macrosomia, twin pregnancy, prolonged pregnancy, or excessive weight gain during pregnancy, like all increase the demand. And so if they're at a certain threshold, you have a supply-demand mismatch, essentially, is how I understood it. And then you essentially have almost sort of a hypoperfusion of a placenta. And that will be even worse if you have normalities in the placentation to begin with. And so that ischemic or poorly perfused placenta releases mediators that cause this whole systemic syndrome that we see as preeclampsia, hypertension, proteinuria, cerebral edema, and liver dysfunction. And I just, you know, your, your case forced me to read about it, and I, I learned all this today, but it, it just made it intuitive to think about as a supply-demand mismatch, a stress test, and the cardiovascular links, because, uh, you know, that's my way of thinking now. 
Oh, yeah. And I think it's a nice way to think about it as like a two-hit hypothesis where you have this sort of precursor of abnormal vasculature, like you're saying it from all these chronic risk factors. And then you have this second hit, which is pregnancy. And that's your stress test. I agree. I think we think about it a lot like that as well. And I was just going to add, I, I know there's a lot of work. And one of my co-fellows actually, Anna Minhas, is looking into a lot of endothelial dysfunction in patients that have preeclampsia or eclampsia or any of these hypertensive diseases of pregnancy. And actually, she's quite focused on the after pregnancy and following them long term. Because as Amit said, there's a lot of overlap between cardiovascular disease and risk enhancing factor. And I, I know that she's very interested in the endothelial dysfunction, which again, reminds us all that the cardiovascular system is not just a pump and pipes. It's actually a living and breathing whole system and uh, endovascular dysfunction and endovascular injury on an acute and chronic basis basically is what leads to a lot of atherosclerotic disease and cardiovascular disease in general. Yeah, there's a lot of cool research going on in this area. Uh, plug for UPMC, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're, we're all actually doing research on some of the lasting effects of hypertensive discharge of pregnancy or, or transition of care of patients into the postpartum setting. So we share in that enthusiasm. Super fascinating. All right, great. So regarding management of this patient's hypertension, so of course, all of these patients get really close management, but there's a lot of conflicting data on mild hypertension. There's a lot of consensus on medication that's recommended for severe hypertension, which is defined as a systolic blood pressure over 160 and a diastolic blood pressure over 110, or really any evidence of end organ damage. And we sort of across the board treat those patients with medication and then really take a personalized approach to patients with blood pressures under the severe range of hypertension. In general, the studies have shown that treating patients has been shown to reduce progression to severe hypertension in general towards the end of pregnancy, but no evidence actually shows that treating hypertension improves fetal or maternal outcomes or changes the course in pregnancy. And in fact, we worry if we make patients too hypotensive that we're going to reduce things like fetal perfusion. And so that's why our treatment perimeters are so conservative in pregnancy and obviously very different than in patients that aren't pregnant. So for this reason, she actually doesn't have a clear indication to start her on antihypertensives at this moment beyond her pulmonary edema, which of course is a severe feature and an end organ dysfunction. But I'd actually aim to just treat her with diuresis and then just see what happens to her blood pressures at this point. Because I bet they'll get below this 140 range that we define her preeclampsia at. So Agnes, what I'm hearing is you wouldn't put her on Captopril 6.25 milligrams TID and up. You got it. Perfect. That's right. Uh, I would absolutely not put her on an ACE <laughs> That would be the absolute last drug I would put her on. But yeah. correct. Yeah, yeah. I think we're really, con- we're much more conservative about blood pressure. Um, yeah. Right. And I, I say that with a, a little bit uh, tongue in cheek, but, you know, one of the <laughs> One of the things that makes me nervous when I encounter a pregnant patient on the console service is just being mindful of all of the things that we don't want to expose either our patient or our baby, who's also our patient too. So obviously no ACEs, no ARBs, no spironolactone. Obviously the depth of my information there is limited. And so it's a reminder for all of us to really look it up every time. Well, that's what uh, we're talking about, some of the resources that we use, because it's not something you're going to be using unless you do this as your primary career. It's not something you're using frequently. So some of the resources that we like to cross-check in terms of what's safe in pregnancy as well as what's safe in breastfeeding, 
because they're not one and the same, is Lactmed. Agnes, you said you like Infant Risk. Yeah, Infant Risk is a really nice app. I think it costs a, a nominal amount, but it's really nice because you can basically very easily cross-check any medication and it breaks it down actually by trimester. And then in the postpartum setting, it'll tell you if it's safe for breastfeeding or not. And it's a really nice app I like to use to cross-check all my meds. And then LactMed is also a really nice app that a lot of our residents and residency use as well as our cardiology fellows. And that's specific for lactation for breastfeeding. But I agree with you. I think medications are, are one of the things that makes us nervous about the pregnancy population. But I think there's so many apps and resources out there now that it shouldn't be a barrier really for us in taking care of pregnant patients. Yeah, great. Thanks. But the thing to remember offhand is the ACE inhibitors during pregnancy are contraindicated. And then if you need a go-to, I'd try like either labetalol. If they're severely hypertensive, we can do hydral. They do use nifedipine. And then OB uses a lot of methylodopa, which really has modest effects, but used frequently as well. Super helpful, guys. Thank you so much. All right. So now that we've talked about what we're going to do with her blood pressure, I guess the real money question is, when does cardiology typically get involved in the care of patients like this? Yeah, great question, Kelly, because it sounds like very much an OB case, but it's actually not. So the McGee OB Guide Department and the Heart and Vascular Institute have this really great collaboration, given we deliver a lot of high-risk patients here at McGee. And as a result, we have a lot of interdisciplinary meetings to talk about managing these patients. And then, of course, as we alluded to throughout this presentation, there's increasing evidence that a lot of the hypertensive disorders of pregnancy or cardiomyopathies that become apparent during pregnancy are linked with later life cardiovascular complications. So there's been such a big push to streamline follow-up and assist in transitioning excellent care to our patients in the postpartum setting. If you look at the incidence curves in patients from diagnosis of their hypertensive disorders of pregnancy to when they establish coronary disease, as compared to age and sex matched controls, the curves actually start to diverge somewhere around 14 years from their hypertensive disorders of pregnancy diagnosis. So that would place this patient at 40 years of age, which is extremely important for cardiologists to know, right? Because this would place her at a risk for early CAD. So collaborating again with our McGee associates or our OBGYN is extremely important. So getting back to your question, Kaylee, we actually put forth guidelines at our institution aimed at when to consult cardiology, targeting sort of high-risk groups. And they're essentially any patient that comes in with severe resistant hypertension in the postpartum setting, requiring two or more medications for blood pressure control, anybody that's readmitted for hypertension, anybody that's coming in for frank heart failure, anybody with pulmonary edema in the postpartum setting, anybody with severe cardiopulmonary symptoms, severe preeclampsia requiring preterm delivery, and then anybody with a significant family history of early hypertension or cardiac disease should prompt a cardiology consult. And now that cardiology consultant will feel very comfortable in the management of this patient. Definitely. So we talked about some of her initial imaging, so her chest x-ray. You know, we also talked about the concern about any structural abnormalities. We don't have a history of that in this patient, but do you think that she needs any additional imaging, an echo, a CAT scan, anything like that? Yeah, so I think she has enough abnormalities, including the pulmonary edema, and she has signs of frank right heart failure that I would pursue an echo in her case. You know, a lot of the cardiologists say their rule of thumb is essentially if you're giving Lasix to a patient, you should be getting an echo. And to put a plug in for a cardio obstetrics team, 
effective interdisciplinary care is super important here. I think while our MFM colleagues see more preeclampsia than us, Lasix is such a common drug in our wheelhouse. And so as cardiologists, we're actually very helpful in giving guidance just on Lasix dosing and duration. And again, I think it's going to be helpful in managing this patient both from a pulmonary edema standpoint and a blood pressure standpoint. So I'd recommend echo and then just diuresis at this standpoint. Regarding additional imaging, like Natalie pointed out, pregnancy is a hypercoagulable state. It's always reasonable to entertain P in the differential. Given we have a chest X-ray with pulmonary edema, she's not tachycardic, she's not hypoxic, and we're always balancing the risk of chest and fetal radiation in pregnancy, I think it's safe at this point to forego any kind of CTA workup for PE because we have higher things on our differential. So did they order an echo, Kaylee, and what did it show? Yep. So we got an echo on this patient, showed her EF was 55 to 60%. She had a flattened interventricular septum, which was consistent with an elevated RV pressure. She had normal RV size and function, moderate TR, and then moderate pulmonary hypertension. Her pulmonary artery systolic pressure was 52 millimeters of mercury, which was consistent with grade one diastolic function. We actually did attempt to get a CTPE on her. Unfortunately, because of her body habitus, we were unable to obtain that. Yeah, so the echo definitely has several indicators of elevated right heart pressures. And she has many factors from her history that could prompt these findings. I agree with Agnes that PE could prompt this, but it's very unlikely in her clinical context, just given the time course and everything else that we've collected so far. To truly define our pulmonary pressures and quantify pulmonary hypertension, we would need to get a right heart cath. However, this wouldn't be helpful for us right now, given she has signs of overt volume overload with her pulmonary edema. So just as Agnes said before, I'd aim to just get some fluid off before doing any other workup. But what did you guys do next? Uh, that's exactly what we did. So during her hospital stay, she was diuresed with IV Lasix. And with the diuresis, her symptoms and her blood pressure improved quite a bit. Ultimately, the elevated right-sided pressures were thought to be multifactorial. So due to her untreated OSA, her obesity, and a component of half path. So before discharge, she was fitted with a CPAP mask to try to send her home so she could use that. And she was continued on her baby aspirin. And on discharge, her blood pressures had improved. Her systolics had come down to 110s to 120s. So I think this is a good point to just take a step back and summarize. So our patient's a 35-year-old female, G12P7, who's 29 weeks pregnant with a history of chronic hypertension, OSA, asthma, morbid obesity who presented with a subacute, progressively worsening shortness of breath. She was found to be hypertensive with proteinuria and pulmonary edema. So hypertensive at 29 weeks pregnant with proteinuria, which is consistent in her with chronic hypertension with superimposed preeclampsia. And then her pulmonary edema is likely secondary to this for reasons that the world doesn't fully understand. But as we were discussing and Agnes talked about before, we do see a fair amount in these patients. And this pulmonary edema is recognized as a severe manifestation. So her final diagnosis, I would say, is superimposed preeclampsia with severe features. So my question for this particular patient is you have a patient here with, as you said, chronic hypertension, OSA, risk factors for pulmonary hypertension, as well as risk factors for heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. And if you would ask me 
okay, is such a patient pre-pregnancy somebody that's going to tolerate a lot of extra fluid? I might say probably not. And like I could see somebody like this, if I gave her without pregnancy, just a lot of extra fluids, I could see her potentially developing volume overload. And again, as you've teased out so nicely, we have right-sided failure, we have left-sided failure. And basically, again, we have a system that really wasn't set up to be receiving a lot of fluid and pregnancy is a fluid overloaded state almost. So how do you differentiate and tease out this pulmonary edema with just somebody who's got these issues and has volume overload versus preeclampsia? And then do you see these patients later in clinic and are they like totally off of Lasix therapies? Like are they totally off therapies for half-bath, pulmonary hypertension, et cetera? The first answer is that it's hard, especially that she doesn't have a pre-echo. I mean, I think she has a small degree of diastolic dysfunction and her blood pressures weren't that high. So if we're invoking flash pulmonary edema, perhaps that's an etiology. I think either way, the management doesn't change. And so either or, I agree with you, Dan, could have been the possibility. I think the way that we would have treated her, I wouldn't have been different. To get at the second question, we see these patients all the time come back and need Lasix. And I think there's a lot of research underway to identify which women are going to come back. And so who do we need to discharge with a script for Lasix? And how are we going to best predict? You know, do we need to echo all women with preeclampsia and see, do they have an element of diastolic dysfunction? Can we predict, you know, are they going to come back for a heart failure admission? There's a lot of research underway to try and figure out which of these patients will come back, but they certainly do come back and need Lasix afterwards. Yeah, and specifically the Vivify program that several of our mentors who we'll be talking about in a little bit run through here follows women up through six weeks. And now they're extending that to a year because they're finding that there's a certain percentage of women who aren't getting off of antihypertensives aren't getting off of diuretics at six weeks, one month postpartum, and what differentiates them and how is their future risk any different? We're not sure. So they're following those women out more closely, which I think could be really interesting. That's excellent. So is there a level of proteinuria that basically shifts her from being a patient just with like HFF that can drive all of this to preeclampsia? So the formal diagnosis for preeclampsia would be a urine to spot ratio greater than 0.3. So she'll meet the preeclampsia from that. What's really difficult is if patients have baseline proteinuria just from being chronic hypertensives or diabetics, which is why if patients come in and they do have that baseline risk factor, oftentimes the MFMs will get a baseline protein screen on them and they'll monitor that proteinuria throughout their pregnancy. And she's a little bit challenging of a case because of her superimposed nature, but that's how they'll get at that diagnosis. And then I think, you know, just from the, the management perspective, ideologically, there's a lot of overlap between preeclampsia and HEFPEF and diastolic dysfunction and cardiac remodeling are actually key features that are linked to preeclampsia itself. But we also have to do the most prudent thing. Like maybe she has underlying proteinuria that predated pregnancy, and maybe she has HEFPEF that predated pregnancy. But missing the diagnosis of preeclampsia is much costlier than missing the diagnosis of HEFPEF. And so I think... Yeah. You know, if we if we say that you meet criteria for both, then we have to treat her as if she has preeclampsia because that's the thing that's going to progress and complicate pregnancy and have a fetal demise and adverse fetal outcomes and manage labor and delivery planning as well. 
Yeah, from an expected management point, I think that no doubt they'll deliver her 37 weeks or earlier. And as we'll talk about, that's what they ended up doing. If she develops severe features, they tend to deliver them even earlier, like around 34 weeks. But yeah, they'll manage them the same as far as medications go and hypertensive management will go because of fetal circulation and worrying about hypotension in that standpoint. Quickly treat them as a preeclampsia patient as far as delivering them at 37 weeks and not allowing them to go beyond that for fetal benefit. Yeah, that definitely seems the, the more prudent perspective. Yeah. And as Agnes is saying, you know, the only effective treatment for preeclampsia is delivery. So erring on the side of caution with patients who meet those criteria, such as her, who's a, she's a complex patient, to be honest, I think makes the most sense. So as we mentioned, a lot of these patients go on to develop cardiac complications in the acute postpartum setting, such as pulmonary edema, as we have here, and persistently elevated blood pressures. So I think the big question is, how do we ensure that they're going to be safely cared for after discharge? I hope you're not asking me. Sorry, I <laughs> no. <laughs> no. I just got sweaty and nervous. <laughs> you know, I feel like that 30 medical student again, getting on the, uh, very carefully. Yeah. Very carefully is the right way to say that. There's a lot of places that are like developing programs, but here at UPMC, the OB and CARDS department have actually created a clinic that it's called the Bridges Postpartum Hypertensive Clinic. And it follows up all of these patients with hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. It helps to ensure that patients don't get lost to follow up. Also that they get the appropriate education on what this means for their cardiovascular risk and what they can do to optimize their health. So it's like early preventative care and it helps get them hooked in with the care going forward that they need. The clinic was actually created by our former chief cardiology fellow and now clinical instructor and T32 postdoc scholar, Dr. Malamo Contoris. She is going to be our expert today who's going to listen to what we said and then correct all of it. And then we also actually have a counterpart to the program called the Vivify program, also known as the Connected Care, that gives every patient a blood pressure cuff on discharge and then follows their blood pressure for six weeks as an outpatient via an app. And as I think we mentioned, we're actually going to be expanding the program up to one year. And this provides a really great setting, very easy for patients just to log in their blood pressure and will get rid of the need for them to come into the hospital, which, as you can imagine, in the postpartum period is a very challenging time to either bring your baby with you or find care for your child so you can make it to your appointments. Yeah, I actually was in the Bridges Postpartum Hypertension Clinic yesterday. It's part of our preventative month. And it's just a really impressive example of interdisciplinary care, which I think in cardiology is the way of the future in a lot of different realms. It's an impressive thing that they're doing. And I think it's going to help a lot of people. You know, I think that's such a wonderful effort because the care here really has to be not only comprehensive, but also coordinated over a long period of time because the history of preeclampsia is a history that's going to follow this patient on for the rest of her life. And living and aging after having had preeclampsia from that same paper I was talking about, you know, just makes a point that there's an increased long-term risk of cardiovascular disease, but also renal disease, diabetes, dementia, leading to reduced life expectancy. And so just having this sort of multidimensional and collaborative home for these patients, both in the acute postpartum period, as well as uh, longer term bridge to care and expected management, I think is absolutely terrific. And the other plug I want to make is for a wonderful Jack's state of the art review titled Hypertension Across a Woman's Life by Nanette Wenger. 
as well as other authors, including Martha Galati, Noreen Walsh, uh, final author Carl Pepin. It's uh, in Jack 2018, and we'll include the link for that in our episode notes and under references. But the abstract starts off by saying that hypertension accounts for one in five deaths among American women, which just is incredible for me to think about. Yeah, Nadab Winger is a legend in our field, so that's a great article. Yeah, absolutely. And stay tuned. We have an episode that's been recorded. It was just a wonderful episode where she talked about the past, present, and future of women's cardiovascular health and the past, present, and future of women cardiology that'll be coming out very soon here in just a few days. Oh, I'm excited. Oh, she was incredible. But guys, this case, I think, was terrific because I learned so much because, again, cardio obstetrics is not an area that we spend a lot of time thinking about as much as we should, but also highlight so many of the strengths at your program and the wonderful research that's going on there. I'd love to hear from you now. What do you love about cardiology? Why are you deciding to be a cardiologist? And what are you enjoying about your training at UPMC? Okay. So I guess first, cardiology, my own personal path has been a little bit convoluted, but I've made it you know, where I am. And I think I'm very excited to learn how to take care of some of these pregnant patients. And that's part of the reason why I chose to come to UPMC, because they have the expertise and sort of the burgeoning research field to really study a lot of these complications of pregnancy that we talked about today. I also have to put in a a personal reason. I think UPMC really drew me, not just because of the amazing co-fellows that I've already been able to work with, the faculty, our program director, Dr. Berlacher, who you'll hear from later, but I actually knew this was the perfect place because this is one of the only programs in the country that offers the Bruce Protocol Challenge for faculty and fellows to participate in. I've loved cardiology for many years. I've known that it was a specialty I've wanted to go into. I love physiology. I love the multimodal imaging. I've been interested in cardiobstetrics and been recently interested in adult congenital heart disease because it incorporates so much hemodynamics, so much cool anatomy and multimodal imaging to explore that. So that's been my exciting niche of cardiology that I'm, I've been exploring. And as I mentioned, I've been at Pitt going on my sixth year, and I just love training here. The hospital sometimes can feel really large. We have two connected hospitals at our main campus. We go up to our VA. We do clinic and consults down at our McGee Hospital. Sometimes we go to Shadyside, which is the community hospital about two miles down the road, but it's such a close-knit environment within our fellowship. I call my attendings on their cell phones during consults or when I'm on call and I just have a question. I've gone out to get coffee just to discuss interesting cases or just to get career advice with different attendings. So it's just such a close-knit culture here within our fellowship. It's a really friendly culture. I think that's a a super unique, large scale, but close knit friendly, almost Midwestern vibe. And that's what sort of kept me here. And yeah, I love training here. Yeah, I also love training here. I have an incredible, a very convoluted path. I thought I would go to OB-GYN when I went into uh, medicine originally, but then landed on cardiology primarily just because it's incredible. There's literally something new to learn every day. There's so many different aspects to it. The more you know, the more you realize you don't know. And everything interacts with everything else. Like you interact with every other specialty in the hospital because of the significant role of the heart and vascular system. I was being fully honest as a trainee, it can be intimidating, especially as a woman going into cardiology. But I've been privileged to have really great mentors, really great training environments. And I think I was drawn to this program 
specifically, mainly because our program leadership has made efforts to prioritize diversity in all forms in the fellowship programs. And I think it's a really amazing environment to learn and grow. I also think that as a training program, we get a wide breadth of clinical exposure and our program encourages trainees to pursue paths that are somewhat unique and be creative in developing a career. And it has the resources to really support that as a big institution. I've been really happy here and the field of cardiology is awesome. And I think that people should, people should go into it. It's wonderful. <laughs> you guys, that was absolutely terrific. I'm wondering if you want to also highlight any other of the fields within UPMC. We can go through everything, but EP to me was like, oh my God, I just am going to tolerate EP. And then I got here and oh my God, the faculty in EP are absolutely phenomenal. Dr. Estes meets with us at least once a week, all as a fellows program and picks up the phone at any time, any day to walk you through any sort of case. And they're really supportive of trainees going forward in EP. Yeah, if you can imagine, given my experience, of cardioobstetrics, probably the last field I saw myself in was interventional cardiology, but halfway <laughs> through the year, I did my month of interventional cardiology and then almost hard pivoted into interventional cardiology because I absolutely love our department. We have some incredibly talented interventionalists who are not only incredibly good at what they do, but amazing teachers, despite being as busy as they are. They really put on great cath conferences and so are amazing teachers both in and out of the cath lab. And we see really advanced heart failure patients. They do a ton of mechanical circulatory support. They do a ton of TAVR cases that we get a lot of hands-on support in the lab for. And I think that speaks a lot to how comfortable the interventionalists are in the lab and to how how dedicated they are to teaching the fellows with how much we're able to do as trainees in the lab. And so I can't speak highly enough about our interventional department. I think Agnes and I, I don't know if this says anything about it, but both of us are very guilty of every month or every two months being like, I think this is what I'm going to do. Because after every rotation, we're like, this is what I'm going to do. <laughs> Which in the age of the mid thirties, you probably should have figured it out by now. But no, it's every rotation, even if I didn't think I was interested in it, I feel like I got a really amazing exposure and for a moment felt like that may be what I was going to do with the rest of my life. <laughs> you guys, thank you so much for this entire discussion. I'm learning so much about cardio obstetrics and the hypertension within pregnancy specifically, but also just the field in general. And I'll say that from going from residency to fellowship, I moved from Baltimore to Cleveland. And so I've made a lot of road trips back and forth. And my absolute best part and favorite part of that trip is stopping by in Pittsburgh for food or drinks or just something is a nice relief and reprise uh, along the way. So you should hit us up next time you're in town. Yeah, I definitely will. You can count on it. But thank you so much for the pleasure of uh, your time and, and your teaching. This has been thank great. Thank you so much for having thanks. us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah thanks. thanks, guys. That was amazing. And your boat is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, while we're like, yeah, we're like fishing. 
and there's fireworks, and it's been, and we're hearing about a great case, and then in this whole fantasy, I have my hair again. So this exploded. is not a joke. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a joke. I came to Pittsburgh as like a single woman in her mid thirties who didn't know a soul, and then I literally sent Katie Burlacker, our program director, a photo from my boat a couple weeks ago, and was like, "I am so happy here. <laughs> like I oh just God. really right. like it. My boat is a good place if anybody wants to come." <laughs> it's done. We're doing it. It's uh, we're doing we're it. We're, we're on our way. <laughs> And now for our eCPR segment, Dr. Malavo Contoras, who was actually a former chief cardiology fellow, now T32 fellow and clinical instructor. And she is also the creator of the Bridges Postpartum Hypertension Clinic, who has a message for you. That was a fantastic discussion and differential from our Stello fellow discussants. Thank you for inviting me, and I'm very excited to participate in the Cardio Nerds program today. This is a topic that is very important for fellows to get sort of additional and more nuanced education on the topic of cardioobstetrics. This is one of the strengths of our program here at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, where we take care of a large number of women with cardiovascular disease in pregnancy in collaboration with our maternal fetal medicine colleagues. In this case, we learn about a patient who presents with heart failure. This is something that we're used to seeing in the cardiology world. It's not unlike some of our general sort of heart failure with preserved ejection fraction patients, but this woman is pregnant, and that makes things a bit different. She presents with both right and left-sided heart failure with pulmonary edema suggested of elevated left-sided filling pressures, as well as increases in her estimated PA systolic pressure of 52 millimeters of mercury. And we see signs of lower extremity edema and also subcutaneous abdominal edema, which makes me think that this has been a volume accumulation that has been happening for some time for this patient. Although this is something we're familiar with as cardiologists, it's a more rare condition for us to see in pregnancy. But I'm not surprised that she presented at this time at 29 weeks gestation. We know during pregnancy that we need to increase cardiac output. And the body achieves this by increasing plasma volume, the maximum change of which occurs at 20 weeks, and also increasing cardiac output, the biggest change of which happens at the beginning of the third trimester, which is sort of where this patient falls. Now, she has some traditional risk factors that we think about with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, but there's a reason that she's presenting at this time and hasn't presented before. And that, I think, is primarily driven by her preeclampsia, and also the volume hemodynamic changes that are happening with pregnancy. We actually have an assessment of her urine protein creatinine ratio from the beginning of this pregnancy, and it was 0.28, and now she's 0.69. So there's a definite increase and a definite component here of preeclampsia contributing to her development of heart failure. We know that women with preeclampsia have adverse left ventricular remodeling around the time of delivery and even after delivery on echocardiogram studies that we have done in the peripartum. So I would say you need to have a really low threshold to echo patients with preeclampsia who have any signs or symptoms of heart failure. That is essentially our practice pattern at the University of Pittsburgh, and it's partially to identify any structural cardiac changes, to identify diastolic dysfunction, but also because preeclampsia runs along with peripartum cardiomyopathy and is part of the pathophysiologic pathway for some types of peripartum cardiomyopathy. 
With preeclampsia, we see abnormalities in measures of diastolic function. So decrease in tissue Doppler E prime and increase in E to E prime so suggests increases in left atrial pressure. We see an increase in tricuspid regurgitation velocity, suggesting increases in pulmonary artery pressures. We also see changes to the left ventricle. Higher proportion of left ventricular hypertrophy, increase in left ventricular wall thickness, and remodeling. We also see that the left ventricle and diastolic diameter is increased. So these women have increases in chamber size that go above and beyond what is expected for a normal pregnancy. And this is not actually unlike an athletic heart in terms of the regular changes we see in pregnancy, but with the preeclampsia, changes are more pronounced. This segues nicely into the question of pulmonary hypertension in this patient. Presumably, she has sort of a combination of group 2 and group 3 pulmonary hypertension, where primarily we would suspect her elevations and PA pressures are driven by her elevations and left-sided filling pressures. But there may be a component also of untreated sleep apnea contributing. This patient is morbidly obese, and so she may have obesity hypoventilation. So it really is multifactorial. There are some studies that have looked at pulmonary hypertension in pregnancy, but not many that have differentiated the different groups of pulmonary hypertension and how that influences outcome. So on the extreme side, we know that congenital heart disease and especially in patients who have Eisenmangers, is associated with high morbidity and mortality in pregnancy. Any type of pulmonary hypertension is not benign, but there are some features in our patient that suggest that this might be uh, more mild for her. So mild pulmonary hypertension and also group 2 or group 3 pulmonary hypertension doesn't have that same increased risk of mortality that we see with group 1 but it does carry a significant increase in morbidity when you compare to patients without pulmonary hypertension. So it carries an increased risk of preterm birth, of heart failure, of arrhythmia. And so this isn't a benign condition for this patient. It deserves a, a subspecialty involvement and careful consideration of pregnancy management for her. So what is the optimal management? Of course, diuretics. And that's really for symptom benefit to decrease her blood pressure, to decrease her likelihood of worsening respiratory failure. But the obstetricians want us to be careful with diuretics in patients who are still pregnant. And that is because we, we want to be careful not to decrease perfusion to the fetus. So, you know, generally we watch very carefully for perfusion parameters. We just don't want to overdo it with the diuretics. Aspirin is effective for preeclampsia prevention, and we actually have more therapies coming along the pipeline. So there is a, a randomized clinical trial that is ongoing to assess pravastatin and its role in preeclampsia prevention. And these therapies really suggest that preeclampsia is a phenomenon that goes above and beyond kind of hemodynamic changes associated with hypertension. There, there are abnormalities occurring at the vascular level that are really important to recognize. So there's endothelial dysfunction, but there are also changes that we've identified in the placenta called decidual vasculopathy that are more sort of atherosclerotic type of picture. And these all kind of contribute to preeclampsia and also I suspect are related to the cardiovascular changes that we see in later life. In terms of hypertension management, nifedipine is the agent of choice for me. There are a couple studies that have shown that it is sort of the most effective at blood pressure control. It's also easier for compliance for women because it's a once-a-day medication. My next go-to is labetalol. And oftentimes, as cardiologists, we're involved with these patients' care if there's resistant hypertension. So we may be turning to third- and fourth-line agents. And I would suggest diuretics and also 
hydralazine, which we can use either in IV or oral form. Now, this patient presented at 29 weeks and was expectantly managed. And I think that's appropriate, but there's not a straightforward right answer here. It really warrants discussion from the obstetricians and also with guidance from the cardiologists. Among women with preeclampsia, those who are expectantly managed longer than seven days are at increased risk for adverse cardiovascular outcomes around the time of delivery and also in the one year postpartum. This is an increased risk for heart failure, for MI, for cardiomyopathy, cardiac arrest, and even cardiovascular related death. So although it may make sense from the fetal perspective to prolong a pregnancy, we also really need to balance the fact that it may not be the best for mothers. And so at 29 weeks, that's something we really want to try to push to expectantly manage because delivery for the fetus at that time carries high morbidity. But we didn't, I don't think, get to the end of the case where actually this patient represents at 34 weeks requiring induction of labor. And for severe preeclampsia, if they've achieved 34 weeks of gestation, then we really want to try to deliver them at that time. So that's in line with kind of the guidelines for management from the OB side of things. And this kind of segues nicely into highlighting how important it is to have multidisciplinary management of these patients. We are so very lucky at the University of Pittsburgh to have a very collaborative relationship with our obstetricians where we meet monthly to talk about our high-risk cardiac patients. We have a very robust partnership and ongoing kind of communication about the patients that we see together. For preeclamptic patients, almost equally as important to peripartum management is management in the postpartum period. And that was what really pushed us to start a postpartum hypertension clinic for patients with preeclampsia and other hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. The risk for these patients carries beyond delivery. And for women with severe preeclampsia, about 40 to 50% of them have hypertension at one year after delivery. And that hypertension risk as well as cardiovascular risk kind of carries forward into even just the 10 years postpartum. We've actually shown that on echocardiograms at 8 to 10 years postpartum, these women are at increased risk for LV remodeling even when they're further out from pregnancy. So this management postpartum is extremely important and really vital for helping to get these women on the right path for prevention in later life. In our clinic, it is run by both cardiology as well as maternal fetal medicine and allows us to kind of address all of the issues that women can face when they're in the postpartum time period. So we do blood pressure management. We also talk about other cardiovascular risk factors and management of those. We also serve as a liaison to other subspecialists, to sleep physicians, to nutritionists, to psychiatry, as PTSD is quite common among these women. And from the MFM side, we can focus on contraception and preconception counseling for future pregnancies. We don't have specific targeted therapies at this point for women with preeclampsia, but these are up and coming and really something to look out for as we incorporate pregnancy complications into our cardiovascular risk models and also develop targeted therapies for these women. So thank you for having me as a discussant. It was really a pleasure to be on the program. to introduce our program director, Dr. Katie Burlacker. She is a phenomenal person, but also an incredible educator, leader, advocate. She has many accolades to her name. She has been a wonderful mentor to me and to all of my co-fellows. Strong force for change within cardiology. And she has a great message for you. Hi, 
My name is Katie Burlacher. I'm the Cardiovascular Program Director here at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. Thanks so much for having me. Cardio nerds, I just got to start off by saying you rock. You have an awesome podcast. I'm a big fan. I follow and listen regularly. And these case reports, the case series that you're doing in combination with fellowship programs is awesome. So thanks for letting us be a part of it. We are super excited that we got to contribute to your podcast. Kaylee, Natalie, Agnes, as always, you always impress me. Thank you so much for choosing this case. I think you did a great job of highlighting a vulnerable population and also talking specifically about some of the really important and innovative care models and technology that are being developed here at UPMC in collaboration with some of the other divisions to think about the future and ways that we can better care for this type of patient that sometimes falls through the cracks. Last but not least, Dr. Malamo Contouris, as always, you did a great job. Uh, I am a proud mama right now. I've been mentoring Dr. Contouris for a long time. She was a prior uh, resident and fellow here and, and medical student too. I've known her forever and she will be a hard act to follow. So I am just going to keep this short and sweet as we talk about our fellowship. You saw today a really great example of what our fellowship is. And first and foremost, I just want to highlight that we attract good humans. That is really the number one thing that I look for when I am interviewing candidates to be a part of the fellowship here is that they're kind and thoughtful uh, and that they give back to each other. So what Kaylee and Natalie and Agnes didn't say is what a great group of fellows we have. We have eight general fellows per year with a lot of subspecialty fellows afterwards. And they are an incredibly close-knit family, really, that supports one another, not only at work, but outside of work. And it's something that I've strived for in creating for a long, long time, but I think is really integral here. And you can see in this podcast how much they enjoy each other and how supportive they are of one another. I think that comes to my second point, which is the fellowship really is, we see it as a family. You know, a lot of other places will say that they're collegial, and, and we by certainly are collegial here as well, but I'd say, I'd, I'd push it one step further to say that we're a family. We've been through some pretty hard times over the past five years, and, and the faculty and fellows really, really dug together during those times, and, and because of that, there's this close-knit, really supportive group of both fellows and faculty that make that feeling of a family pretty pronounced. You see it every single day from the way that we work with each other at the hospital, but also when we hang out together afterwards and how we support each other through the years while everybody is here. Finally, I just want to highlight the diversity that I think Natalie was the one that spoke about it. We've tried in our fellowship to really get a diverse group of fellows, not only from um, a gender, sex, race, background, ethnicity standpoint, but also from their focus of their career. So, you know, our cardio nerds moderators were talking about, can we talk a little bit about the, the traditional side of cardiology, EP and structural cardiology, cath, heart failure, imaging, you know, we have all those and we do them really, really well. We're super proud of those traditional areas of cardiology and a lot of our fellows lean into them. 
We encourage our fellows, though, to put their own spin on those traditional areas as well as new areas of cardiology that are developing, such as women's cardiology and cardioobstetrics, but also critical care cardiology, palliative care and cardiology, geriatric cardiology, things like device development and use of AI and big data in cardiology, kind of digging down into the health disparities research that is now going on and making that a field of its own within cardiology. We, we really try to focus on making dreams come true from a career standpoint because we know that if our fellows are happy in what they are doing while they are training, but also as they make their career choices moving forward, they will not only be successful, but they'll come up with really great ways to care for our patients and to move the field forward so that the things that we are doing tomorrow are better than the things that we are doing today. With that, I, I just want to end by saying thank you again for having us. If there are questions, and I'm sure there are tons still about our program, we would love for you to come visit us on our Twitter account or Instagram account or on our website. There's tons more information, not only about the fellowship, but most importantly about the humans that are here because they're awesome. Check out the fun facts of all of our fellows and some of our alum that are on our website. And Cardio Nerds, we look forward to working with you again in the future. Wow, what an amazing episode. A huge thanks to the fellows and faculty for enriching us with another terrific discussion and an incredible addition to the Cardio Nerds case report series. Be sure to check out the show notes for all of the case media available for review, key take-home points and discussion points, and links to the program. If you'd like the educational takeaways and graphics delivered directly to your email, sign up for the Heartbeat, the Cardio Nerds newsletter, by clicking on the link in the episode show notes. We thank the ACC Fellow in Training section chaired by Dr. Nasheen Riza for their incredible support and collaboration. And a very special thanks to our phenomenal production team for elevating the platform. Colin Blumenthal, Tommy Das, Eunice Dugan, Rick Ferraro, Evelyn Song, and Bibin Verghese, internal medicine senior residents at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, as well as the team MedEd mentor and University of Maryland cardiology fellow, Karen Desai. If you love the show as much as we do, be sure to spread the word, rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform, and consider becoming a patron of the show on Patreon. All right, that's a wrap. Time to make like an S2 and split. So her final diagnosis, I would say, is superimposed preeclampsia with severe features. May I ask a question? No. Please. All right, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Thanks, guys. I just didn't have a witty transition that may or may not be funny. But uh, so... Yeah, and she, she's sticking with no. She never corrected herself. <laughs> oh, oh, I'm just joking. I'm oh my gosh, herein lies no. my problems of not being an active listener. I interpreted that as yes. <laughs> <laughs>